0: Welcome to the Learning Unlocked podcast, presented by Open Sesame. Taking a deep dive into the global world of learning and development with practical tips and tricks, along with insights from leading brands and the people that make them work. This is Learning Unlocked. Now, here's your host, Brian Berger. My guest is Elliot Macy. He is the host and curator of many learning and development seminars, labs, and conferences over the past 30 years. He's a provocative, engaging, and entertaining researcher, educator, analyst, and speaker focused on the changing world of the workplace, learning, and technology. Elliot is acknowledged as the first analyst to use the term e learning. He heads the Macy Center in Saratoga Springs, New York, focused on how organizations can support learning and knowledge within the workforce. He leads the Learning Consortium, which is a coalition of 150-plus global organizations cooperating on the evolution of learning strategies, including American Express, General Electric, McDonald's, GM, and Fidelity. You can follow Elliot on Twitter at emazy.com. That's E-M-A-S-I-E, or visit his website at mazey.com, M-A-S-I-E.com. Elliot, thanks so much for joining me on the Learning Unlocked podcast presented by Open Sesame. How are you? I am wonderful, Brian. It's an honor to be here, and uh,
1: let's have some learning full-time together.
0: Yeah, I'm so interested in your background. How did you first get started in the learning and development space?
1: Well, to, to be fully transparent, I am a, uh, probably from birth on, a geek and a nerd. Uh, so I, I really came up through geek and nerdom. Uh, I grew up in New York City. I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is a very nerdy school, and uh, a science high school there. And from uh, literally my sophomore year on, I was helping to program one of the first computers given to a uh, high school and the like. But being a nerd means that you're curious, you know. You're you're curious about things, and the more I explored that, I realized that my passion was curiosity. And uh, when you get curious about something, you are ultimately going to be engaged in learning, you know. And some of it's formal learning—a classroom, a college, a uh, you know a, a, a structured meeting—but in reality. That was always something that couldn't be scaled, either personally scaled or, or organizationally scaled. So, uh, I early on had this hunch that computers. And by the way, when I started, there were you know our computers were mini computers. There were no uh, there were no you know microcomputers. In fact, I invited my girlfriend to the senior prom by typing out a punch card, an (laughs) IBM punch card. So true nerdum here. Oh, my gosh, that's great. Literally had a hunch, and it wasn't mine alone, that as computer technology evolved, one of the things that we could do is use it for learning. And uh I remember meeting Admiral Grace Hopper. She was the uh, sort of the the leading data processing person. She was in charge of mainframes at the Navy, and she coined the word "bug" because a bug got into her computer. She said that someday computers were going to be used to help us be smarter, to teach us new skills, to uh, learn our jobs. And that started me on a path. And literally over the next couple of decades, I helped uh, launch the computer training industry. And, uh, and it, it was an enormously important uh, uh, process for me to best understand um, how curiosity with technology would
0: take us into a new age. So how did you coin the term e-learning? Where does that come from? Well, it was a meeting. <laughs> I had a meeting with the most senior
1: leaders at IBM in the 1990s, and they were using E for email, e-business, e-commerce. And we were meeting in Atlanta, and I shared with the people there, including the CEO at the time, well, you know, you ought to start using the word e-learning. And uh some marketing uh creative internal coordinator said nah that that word will never stick so uh, i said okay then we'll just use it (laughs) generally in that sense um but here's the interesting thing brian you know the e started off being about electronic Mm -hmm. you know so we thought the reality is, and and you know maybe because Wikipedia either blames me or praises me for being one <laughs> of the people to start using it, uh, we went from 86 people in 1995 who were in this e-learning field to currently 1.8 billion people during the pandemic wow. are learning electronically. But the e changed because the e was about electronic. But, really, what is it about and i that's my my passion is the e is about making learning for everyone every day everywhere, engaging, sometimes entertaining, evolving with evaluation um even occasionally with entertainment in that process and um That's really been the evolution of of e-learning. Once again, right now, whether we're on Zoom or WebEx or a podcast, uh, what was a a small phenomenon, one of the things we'll take away from the pandemic is that we have uh, optimized and extended the ability that people can connect to each other or connect to content and can learn in part online.
0: Yeah, so I want to dig into that a little bit, Elliot, and talk about just learning and development specifically. What traits make for an engaging educator or speaker, in your opinion? Um, they've got to be as
1: different as a, a sleeping aid or sleeping pill as possible. You know, uh, you know if, if they are a verbal PowerPoint, um, my, my guess is it's not going to work. Um, I think they need I'll give you another e that I didn't mention but is a really important one they've got to have empathy meaning I might be teaching you all about how to you know clean the um, the muffler in in a car but I have to have empathy in the fact that it might be confusing to you it might be different how you used to do it you might not understand the reason why you want to do it Um, and so you need to have a degree of empathy. And then I think you need to have the other E, which is engagement. Um, the average person doesn't listen for a long time, unless it's a wonderful podcast like you're doing, Brian, but (laughs) the average person, uh, they listen for about three minutes and then they do a mental, should I stay or should I go? (laughs) And, uh, and very often They're staying They're They're physically there or they're online, but their brain may be drifting somewhere. So it's got to have, you know, engagement. It's got to be empathetic. And ultimately, you've got to always ask yourself, I told that story. But was it effective? Because very often we do things that we as teachers think are really great. But when we actually talk to our learners, honestly, well you could have, you could have skipped that story about your childhood or you know uh because the the learner wants efficiency the learner wants to learn it now, and we've that i think that's the the best skill that a a teacher or trainer has
0: so that's interesting the the three minutes. <laughs> Um, You know, there's snack size teachings, as I call them, and then there's long-form teachings. And Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, a podcast might be more of a long-form teaching that you learn from, you know, if someone's having a a 30-minute conversation. But what are some effective ways to storytell and also I call them proof points, things that back up the stories you're telling or data that you can provide to reinforce your message – What are some of those props or tools you can use to keep people's attention and remain memorable so they remember what you're teaching them?
1: Well, Brian, you use the magic word, which is story, storytelling. You know, stories are this, uh, this is a, uh, to me, it's one of the wonderful inventions or, or structures in our world. And a story works because it has a curve. It has an arc. You know, it goes from where you begin to, engagement to an ending, you know, I'm, but when I'm not doing learning, I happen to be a Broadway producer. We've done 29 shows, you know, uh, but each one of those shows has a big story that lasts an hour and a half to two and a half hours, but then they're smaller stories that last a bit. So I think it is the ability for us to frame up a story that invites a person in, and allows them, with a degree of, once again, connection to curiosity and engagement, to ride the story, to, you know, to become, um, to, to be a passenger and a uh, a partner in that in that story. And I think that's the most critical piece of it. And once again, it might start off being really short, but I'm sure you have and other people online. You know, I've I. I've turned onto one of the streaming uh services to watch a TV program and I've ended up marathoning it. I mean, I marathoned eight episodes of the crown, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, I thought I would just be watching the first part of the first one, but the story got me. Yeah, they hooked you right. I kept I kept going in that in that process. So I don't know if it has to be small, it but it has to be digestible and linked once again to the curiosity of the learner. The moment the learner's not curious, they leave. They may not tell you they're leaving. (laughs) You may not be aware that they're leaving, but they're out of there.
0: So as someone who has hosted and curated a number of conferences, seminars, and labs, what's the recipe for determining the best topics to cover and speakers to feature? And when you're doing that, what do you see as the recipe to engage that audience in person at these events that you're doing?
1: Well, I think there are three parts to it, and I liked how you framed it. Uh, The first part is you've got to get them there, okay? And um, they will come if they, A, uh, understand that they are going to hear from an individual that they normally might not hear from, B, that they're going to hear about it in a process that they trust, you know, um, I don't really want to hear a group of nine people in a panel. It's nice. like, nice. not going to keep me. Uh, and then the the final one is it goes back to storytelling that um, they're going to end up with content that they can um, turn into their own story. Even if I was at this conference and the speaker said X, you know, now somewhere in that process, and it's a tough one is what's the role of celebrity? Because like you said, you can have a really well-known person and they stink as a speaker or they stink as a speaker in that environment. And I'll confess, many years ago, I had a wonderfully uh, brilliant knowledge management person come from Massachusetts to one of my conferences by satellite back then, you know, we pre-internet. And they were horrible. They oh, were no. horrible. And I had booked them to be on for an hour. Oh. And seven minutes in, I put a little nod to my AV person. And we had a truck rented outside of Disney. I said, move the dish. I said, why? I said, lose them over the next 45 seconds. <laughs> and sure enough, I said, oh, my gosh, we've lost them. And then we, I said, well, they're not here, but let's take what they were saying. We had the best session with them. Now – you know, <laughs> they don't know who I'm talking about, but, uh celebrity doesn't mean competence or engagement. Um, but I do believe that at some point you want somebody who can, um, can tell a story that can be retold. It's one of the reasons, just like you're doing with me, I interview, I mean, I have hired the most expensive speakers in the world from Michelle Obama, you know, and, and, uh, Uh, I had Bill Clinton there and I've had Malcolm Gladwell and or Steve Wozniak. And I never let them have more than 20 minutes to just speak. And often I say, why don't you just sit down and I'll interview you? Because what happens there is they're used to listening to a really good talk show. You know, They're, they're used and then you get to chop it up. You get to to get them to focus on. You know, different topics that people want. And sometimes, sometimes they
0: become much better when you can mediate it that way. More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be a top priority for businesses everywhere. Open Sesame has created a survey that will give you insight into where your organization stands on diversity. Aside from being educational, this survey is a powerful tool to help you understand areas of improvement and spark conversations about strategies for creating a more inclusive and equitable workplace. After you take the short survey, you'll get access to Open Sesame's DEI Toolkit, an online hub where you can find additional resources. Visit opensesame.com today to start your survey. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. So a fireside chat instead of a keynote is the way to go. And I totally agree. That's what we do at our event. You know, it's either a one-on-one or, you know, a very small panel. And obviously you've got to have the right person moderating so that they're getting the yep. most out of the, the guests that's on stage. That's another one of my pet peeves I'll just mention to the audience is if I, I love what you said earlier, nine people on a panel, forget it. My max is four and that includes the moderator because mm-hmm. you want to work everyone mm-hmm. into the conversation. And then the other is, if the moderator is more interested in hearing himself or herself talk, you're losing out on this incredible speaker that you brought in. So the moderator has to understand going in, this isn't about me, this is about extracting the best information from this guest.
1: Yeah. And and I'll tell you, it's it it's I not cheat, but I bend the rules a bit. So inevitably these very, very famous speakers uh want to know what some of the questions are gonna be. Right. And I make up cards that look, you know, the same way that Oprah would have a card that has Oprah on it and you know, and I show them the cards and I don't go to where um where they would be rudely mad at me. I never ask what's on the cards, but it looks like I am, you know, uh, because literally once you get them engaged, they become great storytellers, you know, and, and so you got to listen and you got to look at their physiology there and, you know, and you've got to, um, you've got to engage them and you know, you've, you know, you've made it. If somewhere in there, they turn to you and they say, Brian or Elliot, I've never thought about that. Before. Right. You know, right. like, like I, you get to that sweet moment. I mean, I was Michelle Obama's first private speech after leaving the White House. And I had worked a bit with her uh, when she was first lady. And she went to me at, at three quarters through through the conversation. We were talking about learning and storytelling in her life. I asked her a question. She said, you know, I almost feel like I'm on therapy with you, Elliot. Huh. You know, and but it was my I knew I had made it at that moment. I mean, I interviewed Hillary Clinton. Not easy, not easy. And that same speech, the next day, I had Jane Pauley. And Jane came early to hear Hillary. And she takes me to a side and she says, watch her neck. I said, what do you mean? She says, watch her neck. When her neck starts to relax, you got her there. And the way to get there is ask her about her daughter Chelsea and ask her about uh the kinds of stories that they tell each other and I did it and sure enough Jane was in the front row and she gave me like a, thumb, a thumbs <laughs> up in that but you you know it it's it's a it's a physiological thing as, a, as an interviewer you have to make somebody
0: feel really really comfortable right so you mentioned you've interviewed some incredible people are there any stories that stand out besides the one you just told about hillary any questions or topics that really resonated with the audience look back on some of your your favorite interviews
1: well one of my favorite was with steve wozniak and um you know Woz is just this bizarre person we're almost exactly the same age so i figured how do i get him to be interesting so on this on the stage i had a long table with um uh, i had a a tablecloth over it, and when he was up there, I unwrapped what was on there, and it was all this relatively old technology. Like I had a Morse code uh, key for doing Morse code. He picked it up, and he started to Morse code to me, and I happened to be enough a nerd. I Morse coded back. Wow! And we literally went down, and it was almost like walking him through a museum of artifacts you know, and, uh, that was to me enormously, enormously powerful. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to interview, uh, Laura Bush and it was, it was wonderful because I asked her I, I always try to find a question that's, that's related to learning. Now, if you don't know her background before becoming first lady, she was a librarian. So I said, so, um, you know, what's, what are books like in your house in Texas? Well, she says, the problem is that, you know, George isn't president anymore. So he puts them on the floor and they stay there. I'm not picking them up. You know? <laughs> and then I said, how are they arranged? Are they arranged alphabetically by topic or Dewey decimal system? And her eyes lit up and she said, Dewey decimal system, Elliot, you know, and we ended up with this conversation about curating content by organizing it really really well and then probably one of the most amazing uh speeches that I ever was able to facilitate was a, a young woman Metra Mihan who uh was from Afghanistan and um I had met her about two years out of high school out of her high school she went to the Taliban and said Girls are going to be in the debate team, and they said no way. And she said, "Well, I'm going. You can kill me if you, if you don't want, but I'm I'm going to do that." Wow. And she went on to become a MacArthur Fellow. She went on to work at the United Nations, and she's uh, a world famous uh, now diplomat in in Afghanistan. But it was uh, it was my honor to know her uh, in this, you know, in that early stage and help her do her first trip to the United States.
0: That's amazing. It's it's just amazing the stories that stay with us. And it's great that that one stayed with you. I want to ask you about the conference business because, boy, that has taken a hit in the last year. Everyone's had to pivot <laughs> to virtual. I know you were in the conference business and I think you got out of it. What does that look like going forward? Because to me, and I'll use Sports PR Summit again as an example, one of the reasons we started it, and it's you know an intimate event for 125 people, face-to-face. I believe when you meet someone face-to-face, the dynamic mm-hmm. in that relationship changes versus just knowing someone on email or LinkedIn or social media. But we're in a challenging time right now where we're not able sure. to meet face-to-face. So what does that business look like going forward in your opinion?
1: Well, I think it's going through an evolutionary pregnancy. let <laughs> put hmm. it in a fun kind of way. I mean I can now I can mentally I kinda think that the conference business has about nine months to find its next birth, if you will. You know, and obviously there are a ton of hybrid conferences. Uh, I've spoken at a number of them and they're nice. You can, you know, as long as you have sweatpants on, you can do it at any point <laughs> and it takes an hour. And, you know, um, and I always try to make my time shorter because once again, I'm not sure people stick around to right. to a speaker for an hour. Um, I think that if, 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 we're, if we have the good science and governance and the vaccines come I think we're going to come to where we're going to start to see some hybrid and other things pop up later this year. I just, first year ever, didn't attend the con, the Consumer Electronics Show, you know, where I've been a speaker and 200,000 people and it was done all virtual. Uh, and I don't want to put it down being virtual because more people, sh- more people sign up. Not everybody who signs up shows up. <laughs> Not everybody who shows up. Gets that kind of intimate intensity that you were talking about at your sports event. Um I think though we're going to see a rebirth. Now I don't think it's going to be like it always was. I'm not sure we're going to sit in you know a church style you know with our knees knocking the people next to us. Um, I'm imagining early on we're going to huddle together if you can use that word. You know that uh, we may we may do some things where we come together for 80 or a hundred people. And I think we're going to increasingly blend in technology. And I I was an early user of that. I mean, I would literally say to somebody, you don't have to fly to Orlando right did my conference. I'll bring you in by a satellite that I can move if you, if you get boring or or later on by video conferencing. And I'm not sure, and this is the toughest one. I'm not sure people want to be there as long. Because I think what's going to happen coming out of the experience of the pandemic is that people are going to want more efficiency with Mm. their time. So I'm not sure they're going to go to the longer retreats. Um, But I think it's a great opportunity to, to sort of rebirth and try things differently and try them, you know, again, but I keep going back to huddles. I'm, I'm, um, I'm even imagining that one of the first events that I will, offer might be done at a dude ranch you know or um where literally it's an opportunity for people to get together but maybe not just to listen to somebody on a stage you know and um i'm working with the association of international conference centers on this conversation right now because they don't know and boy the the conference business has gone way south and even the, the paid speaker business has has you know, exploded because I know people who are earning, you know, twenty, fifty, even a hundred thousand dollars a speech who haven't had any business in seven months. So, um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously creatively, uh, looking forward to how it, it rebirths or changes into its next chapter.
0: A few minutes left before I let you go. Um, I have a daughter, she's 16, she's a sophomore in high school, and I see how kids are learning right now, remotely, right? And this is a big Mm -hmm. change for a lot of students. And I'm wondering, it seems like we're teaching the same way that we have for the last 30 years, and this is the first kind of shift in, okay, we have to teach virtually right now, but I'm wondering, like you just talked about with the conference business, are we due for a reset with education and how it is taught?
1: Oh, well, you've known how to get my blood pressure to go way up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mine no, too, by the way. I mean,
0: look, look, look.
1: If we had, and, and in so many ways we've learned that we weren't prepared for a pandemic, I think we better be prepared because this probably isn't the only one that we may experience. We would have done it all differently. You know, we would have gone and found – the hundred best teachers in the country. you know, We would have flown them to a safe place at Disney, lots of room. We would have had them do world-class lectures or demonstrations and had that go to the students and then had the teachers engage them in conversation about the content. But what we ended up having are millions of teachers who had never learned online We're now teaching online, you know, and yo, yo, that, you know, I could, I probably could hit a ball, but don't put me in Yankee stadium, you know, and we put them all in Yankee stadium, you know? And, um, so we learned a lot and, and I credit them and I certainly credit parents and ultimately the kids to, who have done the best that they could, but it's a, it's going to be different. And I think we've got to distinguish uh, as you know, from what you do, we have to distinguish between teaching, which is presenting, to um, producing and facilitating, which is engaging someone. And ultimately, I think that uh, education, as we know it, is going to have to change. And a lot of parents and a lot of kids and a lot of teachers are going to uh, be part of creating it differently going forward. And uh, it is it's it is going to be different. I, I, I don't know what it will look like. I think we'll have some experimentation. I think we're also going to have a lot of institutions that are in the education field uh, go bye-bye because I think there'll be some very new and different, uh, different models. And it might be that we go on to Netflix or to Disney Plus or to Hulu to get – World class content. And then we go to teachers for the facilitation, the assessment, the coaching to get to our final competency.
0: More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Open Sesame helps companies develop the world's most productive and admired workforces. How? By having the most comprehensive catalog of e learning courses from the world's top publishers. Publishers like TED and Harvard, and having courses that cover learning topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership development, safety, and compliance, and wellness. Try a course for free today by visiting opensesame.com backslash course of the week. Back to learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. By the way, Elliot, I'm a big proponent of, can we teach these kids some life skills? How about learning how to buy a house, balancing your checkbook, how to do investments, how to sit and have dinner table etiquette, like just some basic life skills, how to drive a car, things like that, because I think we're teaching a lot of things that, again, have been taught for the same way for 30 or 40 years, and these kids get out of school, and then they're like, I don't know basic life skills when I'm off at college on my own for the first time.
1: The most interesting thing, and this is not new stuff, this goes back to brain science from Dewey, I mean, 100 years plus ago, is that uh, nobody learns by being talked to. Hmm. They ultimately learn by working through their curiosity or a problem, you know. And so what we're going to have to accept is that we're going to have to get much better at – packaging content packaging problems um we might even and i i have a a a team member and she has two kids and one's about five and one is about eight and they were learning each other's curriculum to each other so the five was coaching the eight and the eight was it was like the old country schools but Hmm. but that's that's a real aha you know how do we get people to be once you're on the edge of your curiosity, you don't call it education. You go, wow, I just figured something out. You know, I just learned how to do that. And um that's why the ultimate E to me is excitement. You know, e-learning is where somebody is excited about getting smarter, getting more competent. And I don't care if they call it learning. You know, I don't I don't care if they need the certificate at the end. I'm excited that they're, they're better and more able and more ready to to live their life.
0: Elliot, my last question for you. I know you've done these incredible empathy concerts during COVID. I know you've got that passion for Broadway that you discussed, but is there anything that you haven't done yet that you want to do in the future?
1: Well, there are two things I, I, I haven't done yet that I, I really, really want to do. Um, I don't think we've explored, and this is interesting given what we're doing, I don't think we've explored what 3D and 360 audio means. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's very interesting that when you're in a conversation in a room and somebody's talking to your left and somebody's talking to your right, our brain processes sound, 360. We've done pretty good getting immersive video. I don't think we've really figured that piece out. The other p- thing that I'm enormously intrigued to, to do is to go and look at what the role of story and poem is. And, you know, this happens just days after the inauguration. Well, you know, I'm the ultimate fanboy for Amanda who gave the poem yeah. at the inauguration. Incredible. A 22-year-old. But if you watch her, you got to watch her because – she said the words and moved her body and moved her soul in a way that was so powerful. So as a Broadway producer, I would hire her in a, in a minute to be in one of our shows. But she didn't do it from a script. She did it from that word you mentioned. that I'm. She did it by empathy with the message and empathy with the audience. And so I'm thinking about what will the next generation invent and it may look like tiktok it may be she was 10,000 times more intensive than a tiktok but but it was i was so proud that we saw a young person who had an old soul and moved us in a form factor that was multi racial multi generational and multi moment and uh boy I I want to I want to be a player to help in that field uh, and have much to learn from mentors like her.
0: Elliot Maze, you can find him online at m a s i e dot com. Thank you so much for joining us on the Learning Unlocked podcast presented by Open Sesame. Best of luck to you into the future, and hope we can stay in touch. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Learning Unlocked, presented by Open Sesame. Download this and every episode on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Learning Unlocked is produced by Griggs Productions.